in recent days. Um, but we're going to jump back into Matthew this morning in chapter 20. If you haven't been with us before, um, we preach verse by verse through books in our church. And so we've been in Matthew for, I think, about two years now. Um, and probably around this time next year, we will finish Matthew. Um, but we want to get the big picture. We want to understand uh, these books the way that God wrote them. And so we want to look at all of it in context. And so to give you a little background of where we've been at up to this point, uh, we saw Jesus uh, in his ministry teaching about the kingdom of God, performing miracles, doing these kind of things. And all along the way, he's leaving these little breadcrumbs for his disciples about the big plan. The big plan is that he is God's Messiah. He is the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and that the entire Bible is about him, and it's all about his work, and it's all uh, for God's glory, and he's revealing this progressively throughout this Gospel of Matthew. And the writer, Matthew, is writing to a Jewish audience in this book, and so he is laying out a case for Jesus as God's Messiah. And so we saw a few chapters ago uh, with the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, the, the three disciples there saw Jesus glorified and saw that uh, Elijah and Moses were there representing the law and the prophets and authenticating Jesus' ministry, that he is the one that has all authority. He is the one that this is all about. Everything that you're seeing and hearing and experiencing is all about Jesus and that this was all God's plan from the beginning. At that time, he clearly reveals to his disciples that he's the Messiah and they believe that. And then he begins to explain the other side of the coin. Now that they believe that he's the Messiah, he's explaining to them, I have to go suffer and die, which is the opposite of a Jewish understanding of the Messiah in that day. That instead of him trying to achieve victory over the Romans, he was going to achieve victory over a much more powerful enemy, uh, which is our sin. And so this is leading up to this point into Matthew 20, we're coming up on the Passover. And so in this passage, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. And that is uh, an elevation of uh, 1,500 feet. So this is a hike that they're doing. And there are other people traveling with them from all over the region to come into Jerusalem for Passover. So the context that this story that we're about to read is happening in is there's a large group of people traveling. Jesus has now revealed to his disciples that he's the Messiah and that he's going to have to suffer and die and that as they're on their way in Jerusalem, that's where all of this is going to come to a head. And so as, as we're moving with the disciples through the book of Matthew, he's revealing more and more of the plan to them of this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm preparing you for. So let's look at that text. If you found it there in Matthew 20, if you'll stand with me, um, for the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 28. Beginning in verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? 
She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You can be seated. So the title of the message this morning is Embracing the Cup of Christ. Embracing the Cup of Christ. In my uh, family, my wife and I like coffee. Uh, Many of you may, may like that. Um, contrary to our Mormon friends, um, we drink coffee and tea in our house. And those who are in my growth group know uh, we've had many uh, cups of coffee and tea around my dining room table on Tuesday and Wednesday nights in our growth group. And uh, many important conversations that I've had in my life with mentors, with men who have discipled me, with other people have been at a coffee shop or somewhere like that. Um, there's a historian I read once who said that coffee was in part responsible for the Protestant Reformation because it sobered Europe up enough to start having some good thoughts again after the Dark Ages. Um, Why would I say that? Well, there's a cup in this text that Jesus talks about, the cup that he's going to drink. I took a psychology class recently, and they had done a study on the effects of warm drinks and openness. And the study found that if a person was holding a warm beverage, they were more likely to be open and transparent about what was going on in their life than if they were holding a cold beverage. And so there's some science there of the, the warm feeling that, you, that your nervous system has apparently relaxes you and allows you to uh, communicate with people better. And so... Uh, we all have a cup to drink. Jesus has a cup to drink, which we'll talk about in just a moment. We have a cup to drink in our lives. Um, Jesus' cup was not a pleasant cup to drink, and many times ours is not either. And in light of current circumstances, there are many who have uh, drank a very bitter cup this week that they've had. And so how do we embrace the cup of Christ? What do we do when suffering comes into our life, which it inevitably does? Uh, If you have been taught before that as a Christian that uh, uh, you are not going to have suffering in this life, you have been lied to. The Bible does not teach that. History does not teach that. No one who ever did anything significant for God did it without suffering. And so uh, one of my favorite quotes, again, from C.S. Lewis, uh, he said, I didn't go to religion or Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port could do that. He said, if you're looking for a religion that makes you happy, I certainly don't recommend Christianity if you're wanting to be comfortable. And that is the truth. And we see that in our Savior. We see that in the apostles. We see that throughout history. And we see that even in our modern day 
And if we're honest, we all see that in our own lives too. So how do we embrace the cup of Christ? Not just receive it, not just take it, but how do we embrace it? Well, there's four things in this text that I want us to see today that I think will help us understand how we can have the mind and the attitude of Christ regarding this. The first thing I want you to see is the prediction in verses 17 through 19. Jesus says, uh, he's going up to Jerusalem. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. There's a couple of things I want you to notice here. If you've been following along with us, this is the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has talked specifically about his death. This is also the most detailed account that Jesus has given to us. A few chapters ago, it was the Son of Man is going to have to suffer and die and be raised. Now he's being very specific. Guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go into Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes are going to hand me over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going to mock and scourge and crucify me, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. So no more secrets, no more mysteries, no more is he the Messiah, is he not? What is his plan? He's very clear with him. You guys need to understand that when we go into Jerusalem, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed. This is exactly what's going to happen. And of course, we see later on, all of this is completely true, that everything that Jesus said was going to happen did happen in that way. And so he's, he's revealing to them, he's not hiding anything anymore. And remember, he, he started to retreat a couple chapters ago to, to speak more specifically to the disciples. So this isn't something that everybody out there knows about his specific plan, but he's telling the disciples, I want you to know because they're going to come for me and they're going to arrest me and this is what's going to happen and I don't want you to be shocked by that. I want you to know that it is God's will for me to be crucified and you need to let that happen as my disciples. This is the cup that God has given to me. So how do we respond when we see the storms of life on the horizon? Jesus sees this storm on the horizon. It's very clear to him. Again, this isn't, this isn't a, a guess that he's making. He knows for certain that this is going to happen because it was established in eternity before the foundation of the world that God had laid out this plan, and he sees it coming. Many of us, we, we don't know the day that we're going to die. We don't know necessarily when suffering is going to come into our lives. Uh, a few weeks ago, when my wife got a call from a friend, hey, I want to let you know, I just tested positive for COVID and you're there. You guys need to stay at home. We didn't know. Many of you in here, uh, if, you, if you have not dealt with that, you're dealing with the, the fear that is being propagated in our culture of, what if I'm next? Can I get close to this person? Is it okay for me to have relationships anymore? Can I go back to work? Uh, the, feeling, the feeling of terror of, uh, of, can I touch a shopping cart? which sounds silly, but is a, is a real concern for a lot of people. You see, you, you, you're predicting that coming, but you don't know for sure. What if you found out today for sure that you were going to get COVID tomorrow? What, what if you were in Crusoe this week and you see the wall of water coming and you know that you can't get away from it? You know that you can't get in a car. You can't run far enough up a hill. You just know it's coming. What do you do when you see that happening? This is what Jesus is seeing here. 
This is what his disciples are seeing here. He's explaining to them, this is coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It is part of God's plan. How do we respond when we see life storms like that? Because we're going to see those things. Maybe not as severe as other people, but all of us have things that come into our lives because of the curse of sin. And sometimes we do see those coming. You see a family member that's getting ready to pass away. You know it's going to happen soon. You, sometimes you do have advance notice of those things. And how do you live with it? How do you not buckle under the anxiety and the fear that is coming towards you with these circumstances? We have to be like Jesus. What did Jesus do in this situation? We stiffen our backs and we lean into the suffering with the courage and the confidence that Jesus had. What does he do when he sees that this is going to happen? Does he run away from it? No. Does he try to compromise? No. He says, this is God's will for my life. It is suffering, and I'm going to stand up straight, and I'm going to take it like a man, and I'm going to lean into it, even though I know it's painful, even though I know it's difficult, even though I know it might cost me everything. I'm going to lean into the suffering. Now, we don't seek out suffering. We're not pursuing that, but it comes to us. And what is the lesson that we learn from Jesus here in his prediction? His prediction is he still went to Jerusalem. He didn't take another path. He saw it coming, and he, he accepted that as God's will for his life. So how can we endure? How could Jesus endure so much suffering? You think about him sweating drops of blood in the garden, which we'll see later. Uh, what, was, what was he tormented by that caused him to do that? A lot of Southern Gospel songs will make you think that it was you that he was concerned about there. Uh, Jesus knew what the wrath of God was. And he knew that that cup of God's wrath was going to be poured out on him. And that he was going to have to drink that cup. We, we don't know. We read things in the Bible, we don't really know what God's wrath is like. Jesus has seen it. The Bible says everything that was made was made by him. That includes hell. Jesus knows. And he knew then what he was going to have to endure, this cup that he was going to have to drink. So how did he do it? The scripture says that it was because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So what do you do when the suffering comes? What do you do when the trials come? You don't look at the thing. You look past it. When you see that storm cloud coming, you're looking for the sun on the other side. Of This storm is not going to last forever. This trial, this difficulty, this persecution is not going to last forever. How do I endure it? I endure it by not looking at that, but looking at the joy set before me. This is how Jesus was able to endure the cross. This is how we are able to endure the suffering. When you see it coming, you have to remember that there is something on the other side. That's the only way that you can endure. If, if you look around, Peter, when he's walking on the water, what happens to him? He looks around at the circumstances and he begins to sink, right? Why was he not able to endure the circumstances where he was walking on water? Because he wasn't looking at the joy set before him. He wasn't looking at the one that was going to bring him through to the other side. There's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon that I think is so applicable. And uh, he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That's what it means to embrace the cup of Christ, is that when that suffering comes, it's, my faith is about to grow. 
I'm about to become stronger in Christ, even, even in death. If I die, I will become ultimately as strong in Christ as I possibly could be. My faith is about to increase a hundredfold as this, as this suffering comes to me. This is the perspective. We kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. So that's the prediction that Jesus is making here and what we can learn from him. The second thing I want us to notice in this text is the petition. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now we've seen over the last couple chapters this competition between the disciples of who is going to be the great, the greatest? You know, Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Does that mean that Peter is the greatest apostle? Uh, because Jesus said that to him. What do these things mean? And, and this constant struggle between them. And we've seen over the last couple chapters through parables and other means how Jesus has been constantly rebuking them and saying, if you're asking if you're the greatest or not, you're not. That's how things work in the kingdom of God that the greatest is actually the least, the one who is serving is the least. And so we see, even though he's spoken with the disciples about this, James and John's mom doesn't get it. James and John's mom comes and says, I want my boys to be great in the kingdom. And so Jesus, I'm asking you as their mom, will you do me a favor? Now, we know the culture is different because in American culture, you don't want your mom coming to your boss and asking for you to get a promotion. That's probably not going to go well for you in our modern-day culture. Um, but, in, but in this sense, this woman is asking, really in faith, she's asking and saying, you know, why, why, does, um, why does... There's somebody's going to sit at the right and the left hand. Why can it not be my boys? That's what she's asking. And so Jesus is telling her, as we'll see in just a moment, she doesn't, un- she doesn't understand. She doesn't know what she's asking. We don't always know what's good for us, do we? This is part of the reason why God gives us parents, kids. Part of the reason why you have parents is you don't always know what good, what's good for you. Um, and adults, we don't either, but we have a little less accountability than kids do. Well, you know, I like chocolate. I think a lot of chocolate is really good for me. Um, my doctor and others would say that there is a limit on how much chocolate is good for you and other things that we enjoy. And so sometimes we don't know what's best for us. My kids think it would be great for them to just drink a bunch of soda and eat candy and do that stuff all the time. And I know as a parent, because I know more than they do and because I have more experience, because I have a more comprehensive picture of life, that, hey, this might seem like a really good idea to you right now, but the consequences of that are not going to be good. God sees everything. He knows everything. He knows what's good for us. This is part of why he gives us his word, right? God's law is good for us. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So when we hear restrictions of you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, the Ten Commandments, these kind of things, these are not uh, restrictions for the purpose of uh, God just taking all of our joy away in life. The scripture says that uh, we should bring him glory in everything that we do, that we should enjoy all of his good gifts. And yet at the same time, uh, we need to trust that he knows what's best for us. Sometimes suffering is what's best for us. 
even though we don't understand that, even though we don't see the consequences, because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't know the outcome of everything in history. We don't know the significance of our lives and how they fit into the bigger picture of what God does. All of us in this room today have benefited in some way from the suffering of others, if you think about it. Somebody in your life suffered to do something so that you can have the things that you have, so that you can have the life that you have. Someone else had to sacrifice in order for you to do that. So why would we assume that we're not going to have to do that for the benefit of somebody else? Um, that, we, that, that we receive only blessing when other people have received difficulty in order so that we might be blessed. And we forget that sometimes. Everybody has to deal with suffering. So God, God cannot tell us everything. We would die. If, if God revealed his knowledge to us, if he revealed his plans for our lives, we, we can't handle that. We are very, very finite. We think a lot of times that we're very smart, and we think just like a child does, I can handle more than you think I can. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And the reality is, is that in comparison to the mind of God, we are so small that a glimpse of his glory would just utterly destroy us because we cannot even comprehend this God. He is not like us in any way. He is, as my brother Wesley says, he is thrice holy. He is very, very, very separate from us and very different from us. And we should rejoice that we could even have a, a book in our language to even know something at all about this God. Uh, that, that he would come, he would condescend so much to come into a human body in the flesh to even walk among us. Uh, that, 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 that a man could even touch the Son of God is, is a condescension that we don't understand. We, we do not understand how much humility it took for him to become a man. Um, it's, it's incomprehensible. We, our faith is not in the fact that God will shield us from suffering. That's not what we're trusting in. Because if you trust in that, that that's going to fail you. That, that's an idol in your heart. If, if peace and comfort is the reason why you're following Christ today, that's, that's idolatry. You're not promised that by God. None of us, none of us are promised those kind of things. We have faith that God will always do what is right. That's what our faith is in. Our hope is in a person and not circumstances. Our circumstances are going to change. Our, our, our lives are going to change. Sometimes it's great. There's so many blessings that we could count this morning. If we went around, we could spend all day just reciting the goodness of God in our lives. I know I could. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not. The circumstances change. You know who doesn't change? The God of the circumstances. And so our faith is in a person. It, he, he is our rock. I've been reading this, 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 the Psalms this week. He is our refuge. There, is, there wasn't a building in Crusoe that you could take refuge in this week. There wasn't one. There wasn't a vehicle that you could take refuge in. And when you go through there and you look at the de devastation, all three of the pastors have been out there, we've seen it. 
when you go through and you look at the devastation there, there, there's one thing there that hasn't changed, that the river hasn't moved, that the river hasn't destroyed, that it hasn't swept away. And you know what that is? That is the faith of the people of God. They have something to hold on to that cannot be swept away. And what is it? Is it good circumstances? Is it God's blessings? Is it prosperity? No, it's Christ. He has not changed in the last week. His salvation has not changed in the last week. The abundant grace of God has not changed. If anything, it has abounded even more in the circumstances. Even more than we thought that we could have, God has given us even more than that. We don't see what God sees. If you go to 2 Kings 6, you can read that whole chapter. It's a wonderful story. It's one of my favorite stories as a kid. I always thought it was really cool. The prophet Elisha, okay, the prophet Elisha is in this town, and the king of Aram is getting mad because his servants are telling him, how does Israel always know what we're doing? They said, well, it's because the prophet tells them what you say in your bedroom. <laughs> That's the reason why. And he's like, okay, well, i got to do something about this prophet. So I'm going to send an army, and we're going to surround the city that Elisha's in, and we're going to capture Elisha, and then, then we'll be able to defeat Israel. And so in the middle of the night, they send this army, and they surround the city. Chariots, the whole deal. Elisha and his servant are there in the house. And they come out in the morning, and his servant comes out, and he says, Elisha, this, this is not good. There's an army around the whole city. They're here for you. What are we going to do? And Elijah's response is, you need to look again because there's more with us than there are with them. And he looks outside and Elijah prays for the Lord to open his eyes. And there's an army, an angelic army of fiery chariots and, every, and everything. And it says that the mountain was filled with them. So we're not talking about surrounding the city. We're talking about looking at a mountainside and the whole mountainside looks like it's on fire from this massive angelic army that God opens the, eye, the eyes of the servant to see. And it says that the, the, whole, the whole army of Aaron was just terrified and just, just ran, uh, just even at the sight of the army of God. If, if they were only looking at human circumstances, that situation would have been different. But because of Elijah's faith, he knew, listen, that army can't do anything unless the Lord says. There's our, there's, there are other armies here that are not there. We, have, we, we cannot see the angelic world. And I don't say that to just be mystical. I know people freak out about angels and stuff. But they're real. God made them. They do perform functions. And you know what? When I went out to our church member's house and I looked at their house and I looked at the area and I looked at what had been done, there were things that happened on that property that we did not see, that no one has seen. That was the Lord. When I look at my friend Mark's house at their parsonage across from their church, which they used bobcats to scrape mud out of, his house was untouched. One of the only ones in the whole community. Because he is the Lord's man that is working in the middle of that community. Do you think that that's a coincidence or an accident? Or do you think that there were things that were unseen that happened? There are not accidents. There are not coincidences. And so this woman asked, she petitioned Jesus to have this request, but she didn't really understand. She didn't really know what she was asking. 
So let's look at the third thing here that Jesus explains, and that's the peril. The peril in verses 22 and 23. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. We don't know what it's like to be Jesus. The disciples did not know what it's like to be Jesus. In, in, in the smallness of their minds, we forget that we have thousands of years of church history that we benefit from, of theology and doctrine and studying of the Scriptures and and all these things, we benefit from hearing all of these things. Um, we, don't, we, we, we forget sometimes that these are fishermen that Jesus is explaining these things to. These are not Bible scholars. These are not church historians. These are not theologians. These are regular guys that had a little bit of a knowledge of, of the Old Testament, and that's basically all they had to work with. They don't, under, they, they don't understand the way that we do doctrines like the incarnation of Christ or or the fact that John later on in his gospel has to explain that the person of Christ existed before his birth on the earth from eternity that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God we we forget that it was decades later that he wrote something like that of having to think and meditate and understand who it, who is this Jesus Basically, right now, they say everything about the Messiah that we've heard uh, from the Bible is true about Jesus. The cultural stuff doesn't seem to be true. And we've got the Old Testament witness about the person of Jesus, and we've got what Jesus has told us, and that's basically all we have. And so sometimes we read back into the text what we know after thousands of years of study, and we forget these guys didn't know this stuff. So... When he asked them a question like, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They're like, yeah, Jesus, we're able to do that. Because their understanding of that was, is Jesus said he's going to go die on the cross, and I'm willing to go die on the cross. Now, that's not a small thing. Let's be honest in here. If they were offering free passes to go out and be crucified, none of us in here are going to be signing up for that. Let's be honest. So these were tough guys. And, and they understood that there was a very high cost that was going to come with following Jesus. And so they're saying, yes, Jesus, I am willing to go and die for you. And, and Jesus tells them, you are. You are going to drink that cup. But there's, a, there's some stuff in Jesus' cup that's not going to be in their cup. And that's ultimately the wrath of God. There, there, is, there is some human suffering that these apostles were going to endure. There's some human suffering that we're going to have to endure. We have no idea what it is like to take on a, even a moment of the punishment for our sins. We will never understand that. And, and the fact that Jesus on the cross took your, your payment, not for a moment, not for a day, it would have cost you an eternity of suffering. And, even, and after an eternity, on the last day of eternity... If you had to stand before God again to have your case re-adjudicated, he would say, you haven't done enough. On the last day of eternity, for one of us, and yet on the cross, he took that amount of debt 
not just for you, not just for me, for everyone who believes, according to the Scripture, and extinguished it. He drank the cup dry. This is the only hope that we have. Because when we stand before God, and he says, I'm about to pour out my wrath on you, all the wrath that I have left for you, sinner, I'm about to pour out on you. And he turns that cup upside down, and there's nothing. There's nothing left. That's the only hope that we have. That is the gospel. There is nothing left for us to receive. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. That is the good news. People need to hear that because they don't understand. They don't understand Jesus. And these men thought, yes, I will go to the cross with you, Jesus. But Jesus is saying, you don't know what I'm going to do on the cross. You don't really understand what's going to happen there. Because if you did, you would understand that it, it's a foolish thing for you to think that you can drink my cup. No man can drink the cup of the wrath of God. They thought too highly of themselves, too highly of their ability. And don't we do that all the time? When we see things coming our way, when we see suffering coming our way, I'm, I am going to work harder to fix it. And yet we have to humble ourselves and say, if God does not do it, it will not be done. I'm going to tell you right now, we, our community has a lot of work ahead of it. It's overwhelming. There's more to be done than any, anybody can do. And if homes are restored, if families are restored... If finances are restored, if businesses are restored, if those things happen, I'm thankful for all the volunteers and workers, but God gets the glory for that. Because the only reason why any of those things can happen is because God says. Because he's sovereign over that. So we think about the peril of Jesus drinking this cup. And if you're in Christ this morning, this was for you that he drank that cup. And the invitation to receive that forgiveness is for the whole world. We need to remember that. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's a dictator? No, because he's good. And so we need to be telling people, like, listen, hey, do you need some good news right now? When we see somebody suffering, do you need, do you need to hear something good? Did you know that Jesus says that anyone who comes to him, he will not turn away? Not one person. No one has ever come to God in faith and said, I repent of my sins. I surrender my life to you. You have purchased everything for me. I am completely surrendered to you. Nobody has ever done that one time and God has said, I don't receive that. I don't accept that. That's, not, that's never happened one time. Now, they have to come in humility. They have to come recognizing, you drank the cup that I could not drink. And I have to accept that. And I'm not going to try to drink that cup with my works. We have to be at that point. But that's good news. When we have God's ability in mind and not ours, every request that we make is too small. So you think about the prayers that you're going to be praying this week, praying for others, praying for our community, praying for our church family, even in your own life as suffering comes into your life, the prayers that you're going to pray. Do you want to know how to have bold prayers? Do you want to know how to ask God for big things and see him do awesome things? You ask according to his ability. The problem is, is too many times we pray according to what I think I can manage or the people that I, I, I know some people that can do some stuff. So God, I'm going to pray for you to allow them to do that. 
If you want to see miracles, you cannot get miracles from asking God to do things that are in human ability. That's the definition of a miracle. It's supernatural. It's outside of man's natural ability. So if you want to see the power of God in your life, you pray according to his ability. God, I want you to do something in this situation because you are able and you are worthy of the glory and worship that will come from you doing that. This is the way that we pray for big things. If we want to see this church, this little church, transform Waynesville, it's not just going to happen because of money or buildings or how many people are here on Sunday morning or whatever. It's going to happen because we're saying God is able to save Waynesville. He is able. The reason why we're praying for a revival in East Fork right now is because God is able to do it. It's not because my friend can do it. It's not because they have a nice building. It's not because of any of those things. It's because if, if the Holy Spirit of God moves in conviction on there, there will be a revival there. People will be saved. People will be drawn to Christ. We cannot manufacture that to happen. And so what do we do? We ask according to God's ability. That loved one that you have that's not in Christ, and you're thinking, I've shared Jesus with them so many times, and they just won't listen, and they just don't hear it. Stop asking according to your ability. God, you know where that person is right now. You can, you can touch that person's heart and regenerate them and save them right now without me even speaking a word, without me ever seeing that person again. You are able, your arm is not short that you can't save whoever you purpose to save. And so I'm just asking you to do what you can do. These are the prayers that we should be praying. So we're not asking according to human wisdom. And then finally, the last thing that, that I want you to see here is the point. What is the point? Let's look at verses 24 through 28. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what's the point? And this isn't just the point of chapter 20. This is the point of several chapters that we've been leading up to. Again, he's trying to drive it into their heads. This is the wrong conversation, guys. Who's going to sit at my right hand and my left hand? Do you know who's going to be the one? It's the one that's not asking because they're out serving. That's the one that my father's picked. If you're in here and you're trying to get position or you're trying to get authority, you're trying to get power, then you've already lost it. You're, you're the least of the disciples the fact that you've had to ask this question. Because, again, the other ones, they're getting indignant. They're angry. Well, Jesus, Jesus said that they got to drink the cup. Well, that's like a royal cup. How come they get a royal cup and I don't get a royal cup? That's not fair. And Jesus is saying, you guys don't have a clue what's in that cup. If you knew what was in that cup, you wouldn't want it. Because they were thinking too highly of themselves. There's a, a monk from several hundred years ago. His name is Brother Lawrence. And he wrote a famous book called Practicing the Presence of God. And uh, he, he was in the monastery, and, you know, they had all these monks that, would, you know, they would spend all their time, you know, studying and doing these big libraries and writing these great works on theology and uh, impacting these communities and doing all this kind of stuff. Brother Lawrence worked in the kitchen. He, he washed dishes and cooked. And when he died... They, he, they had found out, basically, he had these private journals that he had been writing, and a lot of them he destroyed himself because he didn't want anybody to ever take them or read them. 
and they found all this, this wisdom and things where he was writing about, today when I was washing the dishes, I was praying to the Lord about this. And how they found out he was actually one of the holiest monks in the entire monastery, and nobody knew it because he was just down in the dish pit washing dishes for people. He wasn't the theologian. He wasn't in the library. He wasn't the preacher. He wasn't any kind of important person. He was the least person in the monastery. And they compiled his works into this thing called Practicing the Presence of God. And he has this quote uh, where he says, Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the dishes. This was his prayer. I want you to make me into a holy man because you're the Lord of pots and pans and things, and you can make me into a holy man by getting meals and washing up the dishes. This was his prayer. That is the mindset of Christ, right? Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who did what? Who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, right? God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. This is a pattern in Scripture. Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, if you want to be the best, you have to be a slave to, to all these brothers and sisters. And so what's the point? There's things we can learn about suffering. There's things we can learn about Christ. I hope that you love him more after what you've just heard. But what's the point here? How, how do we do something with what we've heard this morning? There's a saying that uh, orthodoxy begets orthopraxy. In other words, if you have right doctrine, you will have right living. Uh, we at Barberville believe that that's important. That's why we teach a lot, because we think that the more that we understand the Scriptures correctly, the more our lives reflect the, what Christ wants us to do. And so your thinking should change your actions. So how... Does our, our thinking in this text change what we do on the outside? How do we apply this? Well, here's, here, here's the secret to this passage. The more sober that you are about the blood of Christ, the more serious you will be about serving the bride of Christ. I'm going to say that again. The more sober you are about the blood of Christ, the more serious you will be about serving the bride of Christ. We can fall into a trap where we, see, we, we look out in the community right now and we see people serving and we think to ourselves, I am more spiritual than that person because I know more theology than they do. But the question is, if that person is doing, if they're serving, even in ignorance, in the kingdom of God, are they actually greater than I am? Because they're doing with what we know. The problem is, is sometimes we do very little with what we know. We, we're so concerned with more theology, more doctrine, more preaching, more knowledge of history. All of those things are wonderful things. But if we don't use any of the things that we know, if it doesn't transform our actions and our decision-making, if it doesn't shape our worldview, it's worthless. And so we have to be careful that we're not so busy being right that we're not doing anything. And so we can't say that we're serious about the gospel as individuals or as a church. 
We can't say that we're serious about rightly dividing the word of truth. We can't say those things without service being the result of that. Because then what, what, what we've become is like the Pharisees, where we're really smart and we know a lot of stuff and we're whitewashed tombs. That's the trap that we can fall into this morning. And so the trap that they fell into is, I want to be great in the kingdom because I want everybody to look at me. And he's saying, if you're not serving others, that's worthless. That's a worthless pursuit. And you won't receive it. So as we think about those in our church family who are hurting right now and struggling, those in our community who are struggling, as you're going to hear about opportunities, there's a practical way to do this because there's different kinds of people that are out in the field right now. And let's be honest, we, we, we know culturally that if we go right, out, out right now and we find somebody that's feeding, feeding victims of this flood and we ask that person what the gospel is, there's a very small chance that that person's going to know the answer to that question, even if they're pastors. I know pastors that do not preach the gospel in their churches in Haywood County, and they're out there. So how do we get to the gospel of those people? Well, one of the ways that we do it is, is we start fixing plates, or we show up, or we start cleaning out a house, or we start doing whatever, and we're doing the service, but why are we doing it? It's because of the blood of Christ motivating us to do those kind of things. And so we can pray we can give, we can serve, we can do all these kind of things. What we need is we need to be doing the work that others are doing for the purpose of uh, I'm giving you a hot meal, but there's, there's a meal here that you're invited to also that you need to be a part of. And if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, then you're able to come to the Lord's table, not necessarily a table in the community. Those are the kind of invitations that we need to make to people. We, have the the, we, we can have the right theology, but we have to have the right practice. And you know what it's called when you practice and do this kind of things? Worship. It's doxology. And so we can sing a, a, a great hymn in here, and God's worthy of that, and we should do that. But when we're out in the community and we're doing the work of the ministry, as the Scripture commands us to do, that's worship too. And so we should do both and not one or the other. And that's the point this morning. That's the point of this text. That's the point that he's making to his disciples is stop arguing about the details of my kingdom and start doing the work of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we could even be in your kingdom at all. Uh, Lord, you are you so wonderful and so holy and so mighty. Uh, Lord, all of the problems in our world are so small compared to your power and your authority, Lord. And the fact that we, as broken, weak people, could, could even be a citizen of your kingdom is just incredible. And the fact that we can be here together is incredible. And the fact that, Lord, you have invited us to be a witness to the world, to be your heralds, to go out into all the world and proclaim your kingship, to proclaim the expansion of your kingdom on the whole earth, and that you have dominion here and everywhere. Uh, Lord, it's, it's just a tremendous privilege. So Father, I pray as we prepare to come to your table in just a moment, 
that you would prepare our hearts to be inviting other people to your table this week. Not because there's anything magical going on there, Lord, but because when we gather together in communion, we're gathering together as your people. And we want more people to come into your kingdom. So help us, Lord, to, to be mindful as we enter into this time that there are many that need to be invited to your table through repentance and faith. And that, Lord, if we don't tell them, they may not hear. And so help us to be so serious about the blood that you shed, about that cup that you drank for us, that we would serve your bride and that we would serve the world. Lord, help us as a church to be the greatest church in the kingdom of God in Haywood County because we are the slave of everyone, because we're the servant of everyone, as you said, Lord. Not because we're greatest in the eyes of men, but we want to be great in your eyes. So help us, Lord, in Jesus.